0: Open up to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to look at the first 20 verses this morning. I like to start with story, illustration, something to kind of grab your attention, get you invested or interested or focused on the idea of the sermon, the topic, the theme So listen to the intro today. The very words of Jesus Christ. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Are you interested now? Those are hard words from Jesus. And the more I studied that this week the harder the words became. Because what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior is saying is that there is a worship of God that is completely worthless. That needs to cause us to take notice. You know, I I think when we talk about worship where your heart isn't in it, we might think of going through the motions. Um, Not having our heart fully invested in worship. And and I think we would recognize that that's not good. Like our heart should be in it. You shouldn't just go through the motions, mumble along with the words and, you know, go home and and try to get on to something else. And and man, we need to hear that especially on a time change Sunday where maybe some of us our hearts not quite in it cuz we're a little sleepy. But what Jesus is talking about is actually so far deeper than that. This is not him chastising the religious leaders of the day because it's kind of an empty worship. They're just not really, their hearts really aren't in it. They're not really feeling it that morning. This is Jesus challenging them, saying, you, as you're struggling to live out your faith, as you believe you're living in a right relationship with God, he's saying you are like someone who is drowning and has grabbed onto what they thought was a lifeline and it was actually an anchor. And it pulled you under. That's what he means by heartless worship. It's not just that their hearts aren't in it. It's that their hearts are in the completely wrong place. It's like somebody jumping out of an airplane thinking they have a parachute and they go to pull the ripcord and they realize they grabbed their child's kindergarten backpack. That's the challenge. It's hilarious till it happens to you. <laughs> That's the challenge he's given to these religious leaders. You think you're trusting in something, but it's absolutely worthless. Christians, we need to listen to this message very carefully and let it challenge us. Worship here in this passage, we're going to be talking about the heart of worship. What is a true heart of worship? Worship here in this passage is not about a Sunday morning service. It's not about a once a week coming and singing some songs and praying together and fellowshipping and wondering when the church is going to serve coffee again. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about day in, day out, living in relationship with God. Their total life lived in relationship with God. That's what he's talking about as worship here. Yes, the once a week is part of that. For them, it would have been on Saturday in the synagogue and other times as well. But he's talking about all of their life, everything they do as people saved by God worship is our lives our attitudes and our actions all of our life lived in relationship to God so from this passage I want to challenge us with two questions to diagnose the heart condition of our worship that's what I want you to leave here today with two questions be able to answer each of those questions and the questions are this who's in charge If we're going to actually determine if we are truly worshiping God, we must answer the question in our lives, in our world, in our country, in everything. Who's in charge? The second question we need to answer is, what is the problem? What really is the greatest problem? So let's start with the question of who's in charge. And actually, before we get there, I would like to do something I don't normally do. I always read the passage As we walk through it, I would like to read the whole passage at once this morning and then walk through it. Because what we're coming into today is a, a, it's kind of a scene in Matthew where Jesus dialogues with the religious leaders. Then he gathers the crowd around. It all happens together at once. So I would like to get it out in front of us at once. So the other thing I'm going to ask you to do, if you're able, is to stand. If you would, because it is a time change Sunday and you need to wake up. So stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I will read this. You can follow along. I'll be reading out of the NIV. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? For God said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant, That my heavenly father is not planted, will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. You may be seated. So let's start with the question of who's in charge. These religious leaders, these Pharisees think they have it all together. If you notice in the text, these Religious leaders come from Jerusalem. By my calculations, where Jesus is at this point is about 80 miles from Jerusalem. That is no small trek when you don't have cars. So these leaders have been sent as a delegation from Jerusalem to go to Jesus and check him out and challenge him. This is a big deal. They're calling in the big guns at this point to challenge Jesus. And they come to him And they ask him a question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? By this point, the Old Testament portions of it are a few thousand years old. As you can imagine, a lot of teaching, a lot of ideas, a lot of books we might say today have been written on this. A lot of sermons have been preached. There's been this whole body of work and man-made words that have been built up over the years and over the generations. And look at what they say. Why do your disciples break the what? Because this is crucial to understanding what's going on. Tradition of the elders. The thing they're going to ask him about is washing hands before they eat. And it's important to understand this has nothing, nothing to do with hygiene whatsoever. They had no concept of hygiene. They had no concept of, of germs or bacteria. They didn't wash their hands to try to make sure their hands were clean of germs and bacteria. Okay, that's not what's going on here. This is a ritual ceremonial cleansing to maintain their own righteousness from being infected by the unrighteousness of the world. That's what's going on here. The other thing it's important to understand what's going on here is nowhere in the Old Testament are the normal people commanded to wash their hands before they eat. Kids, don't go home and use this against your parents. Okay, Different thing, completely different issue. The Old Testament did not command this. This was not part of the law of God. The priests were the only ones that had to wash their hands before offering the sacrifices to make sure that they were ceremonially clean. So the Pharisees and the religious leaders come along and they're going, hmm, we want to be extra righteous. And we want to help the people to be extra righteous. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make them wash their hands before they eat. So it was their rule put on top of God's law to try to force people to live up to their standard. Now, they come to Jesus and they challenge him. Basically saying, why are you not as good of a leader as we are? Why do your disciples not wash their hands like we do? And notice Jesus' response. And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? There would be no more offensive thing to say to the Jewish leaders than that right there. Because they come and say, you're breaking the tradition of the elders. Jesus says, you're breaking the law of God. God. Now, he gets into a very technical discussion here. I'm going to summarize it a bit so we can understand what's going on. He says, for God said, honor your father and your mother. Anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Those are straight out of the Old Testament. One of the ways that that was understood was that as parents aged, the the family was to care for them take them into their house, provide for them, uh, feed them, give them shelter and clothing. And so the younger generations, the children, needed to provide financial assistance to their aging parents in order to keep the law of God. But the religious leaders twist this. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God. This was a practice called Corbin. I might be totally butching the pronunciation there. But it was developed over time in the Jewish world. And it came from a good place. The idea was I could set aside a portion of my income, a portion of my house, belongings, whatever it was, and I could devote it to the Lord. I can't use this for other things because it's devoted to God. Sounds so righteous and holy, right? They use this as a loophole. And so the child that didn't want to support the aging parents would say, I'm donating this money to the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, there was no time limit on that. They could hold on to the money as long as they wanted. They could even use it and invest it for as long as they wanted, as long as, hypothetically, someday they gave it to the Lord. Then they could turn to their parents and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't help you out. It's devoted to the Lord. And that's what they did. And the Jewish leaders affirmed this. They always found these loopholes in the law to get what they wanted. And Jesus' main point here in verse 6, thus you nullify the word for the sake of your tradition. Do you understand that at the heart of this is a battle for authority? Who's in charge? The religious leaders are saying, we're in charge. Our rules, our way, our tradition. And Jesus is saying, God's in charge. In fact, I think he's even taking it a step further because the religious leaders are saying, we are the ones that understand how God's word is to be interpreted and applied. And Jesus is saying, nope. And he is claiming the right to authoritatively interpret the Old Testament law. Which, if you're not a religious leader in their culture, there's only one other person that correctly all the time and authoritatively interpret the law of God. And that was God himself. He is claiming a greater authority than the Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites. This is the first of many more times in Matthew, as far as I can tell, that he just outright calls them hypocrites. And he will use that word much more, especially in chapter 3. He'll have seven woes, seven statements of judgment against them. And I think six of them he says, you hypocrites. And the seventh he says, you blind guides. It's brutal, which is interesting later when the disciples say, do you know that that offended them? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was well aware this offended them. You hypocrites. Their teachings are merely human rules. They're not relying on trusting and believing in the authority of God anymore. They're just looking at themselves. And he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. And the context here is a warning to the people that you're going to go in exile because you've walked away from your relationship with God. The irony. If you remember, i tried to tell you a little bit about the background of the Pharisees. Their mentality was, let's get the people as holy and righteous as they can possibly be, and then the Messiah will come. They thought that they were the ones bringing about God's will. And Jesus uses this Old Testament passage they would have known so well to say you are driving people away from God. D.A. Carson states this, while they made a show of devotion to God, their religious traditions took precedence over God's will. And I thought, that seemed pretty, obviously that's what's going on here, but then I had this thought, what if we take out the phrase religious traditions? While they made a show of devotion to God, their blank took precedence over God's will. Because some of us, maybe, that grew up in the church and we have a, a church background and, and we have a lot of traditions in the church, maybe for us it's, it's traditions that might take precedence over God's will. But I think we need to be careful, if we're going to correctly apply this to us, to understand that we all put things in that blank. Our comfort. Our happiness. Getting along with the culture keeping the culture happy, trying to fit in. Anything that we put in place of God's word is taking God's authority. Any rewriting or changing of God's word is wrong. So we've got to start with that question to diagnose our hearts. If we're going to say, am I truly worshiping the Lord? Ask yourself in your life, who's in charge? As long as we are in charge, and our rules to us are more important than who God is, then we are saying we're the ones in charge. One commentator states, as long as the thoughts of man are central in the church, the worship of man will be central in the church. Alternatively, as long as the truth of God is central in the church, the worship of God will be central in the church. A word-saturated church leads to god glorifying worship and I firmly believe that to be true in the local church but I also believe that what this passage is talking about is the worship going on in our own hearts every second of every day whether you're in this building or anywhere else where's your heart who's in charge the second question we need to look at is what's the problem I feel like this is like a cop show. You know, somebody shows up I'm like, who's in charge here? And, oh, what seems to be the problem? But these are the problem. These are the questions I came out of the text. What is the problem? What's the real problem of our lives? I think it's very easy as Christians to think that the problem is out there. This world, it's all falling apart. The government, the, the society, the culture, all the problems are out there. Praise God, they're not in here with us. We're good. All the problems are out there. That's an easy way to live. We don't ever have to be challenged. We can read things and go, man, I hope so-and-so hears this. If only they would listen to this. If we're going to get at the real heart of worship, we have to ask ourselves, what is the real problem? And where is the real problem? Because, If the problem is out there in the world, then the world needs to change. If the problem is out there in our lives, meaning, well, I just do some bad things, but basically I'm inherently a good person. I just kind of mess up from time to time, need to shift around and change a few habits. Well, the problem's still out there in our lives. But if the problem is in us and in our hearts, then the solution has to get to our hearts. Look at verses 10 through 11. This is to the Jewish mindset, one of the most revolutionary things Jesus Christ ever said, ever. This was a bombshell in the Jewish religion. Jesus called the crowd to him. So he's just had this dialogue with the Pharisees where he's kind of put them in their place. I imagine they were just stunned and didn't know what to say after that. And the crowd's going, (gasps) and Jesus says, come here. Listen and understand what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. Now you might be thinking, okay, no big deal. But this was revolutionary to the Jewish concept of their relationship with God. They understood that they were saved by God, that God had called them as a people. You know, hopefully the story of the Old Testament with the Exodus. God saved them out of Egypt and he called them into a relationship with himself and he brings them into the desert and he gives them his law. And in their mind, Their whole job as God's people was to live that law the best that they possibly could. And they developed an idea, a false idea, unfortunately, based on this, that being the Jewish people, being God's people, was all about what they did and whether they did it correctly and didn't do the other stuff that was bad and they stayed away from that. That was the stuff other people did, but not them. Their idea of righteousness being right before God was whether or not they did certain things that were right, rituals, offerings at the temple, and stayed away from other things that were wrong. You know, it's interesting. I think this had the effect of causing them to look at the world as a constant threat to their righteousness. I found it interesting at the early on in the pandemic when we started wearing masks and going to the store, and how it changed my perception of people. It used to be you would go to church or go to the store, and you would see so-and-so, and, and, oh, I might see so-and-so, and and we could catch up, and we, you know, you'd go from way across the store to, hey, and you'd come close, and how's so-and-so, how's your friends, and it was great. And then the masks came, and the pandemic, and now it's, that person is a threat to my health. And every time I saw somebody with a mask, and please, this is not about whether or not you believe masks are right or wrong. I don't care. This is about how it affects our conscience, right? And suddenly now everybody is like this threat to our health. And it affects how we see each other. This was how the Jewish people looked at their own holiness. The world was a threat to their holiness and to their righteousness. And they had to do everything they could to put up all these barricades around themselves. But verse 11 is key to understanding Jesus' understanding of righteousness. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. It's what comes out of our mouth that defiles us. Righteousness does not come from outside of us. Righteousness has to start when we're changed from the inside out. The ultimate problem that Jesus understood was that the problem is not out there in the world. The problem is in here in us. And so the solution has to change what's inside of us, not just change the world and not just change our actions. Now, to the Jewish mindset, Jesus was completely contradicting the Old Testament here. And I think to some Christians today, we still would read this and go, oh, yep, he's just setting aside the entirety of the Old Testament. If I could briefly, I just want to explain, he's not setting anything aside. This is what it always was the whole time. They misunderstood it, and we still misunderstand it today. And let me just briefly, we won't go in depth here, but Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, you know the the giving of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. The law of God starts with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments starts this way. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God says, I have saved you, I have changed you. You are not who you were. Now let me tell you how to live it out. See, the change started with inside themselves, who God called them to be, and then affected their relationship with the world and their actions. We get that all backwards, and they get it all backwards especially. They said, we are God's people if we do the right things. God said, you're my people because I've called you. Now go live this way. Even in the Old Testament, righteousness was always first about what God did. And only secondly, about what we did. In verses 12 to 14, the disciples come and say, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended? I bet they were. Now, we kind of take that as kind of humorous, but understand these are the bigwigs sent from Jerusalem. This is not the disciples going, man, I just don't think they really like this. This is the disciples going to Jesus going, man, you better cool it or we're all in a lot of trouble. These people could have us arrested and possibly even put to death, which is exactly what ends up happening later on. This is fear here. And Jesus, rather than backing away from his statements, he says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. He's saying they don't know what they're talking about and they probably don't even belong to God at all. That's harsh. You remember earlier he gave a parable about the wheat and the weeds and the wheat was God's people and the weeds were growing up in this world. Now he's saying those Pharisees, yeah, they're weeds. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. They don't know what they're talking about. Friends, watch out for self-righteousness people when people take their own standard of righteousness and they put it on everybody around them as the pharisees did they say you have to be good enough for god you have to be good enough like i am good enough you have to be like me to reach god's holy righteous standard those are man-made ideas but similar is people that say that part of scripture just doesn't apply to us anymore The world has changed. The the standards in the Old Testament of of life, and marriage, and gender, those don't apply anymore. And they change the word of God. That's also man-made rules. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Stop following them. They are blind and probably lost. Jesus goes on to teach about clean and unclean. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Which is interesting because I don't actually think Jesus meant any of this as a parable. Isn't that funny? Like Matthew normally would say, and Jesus spoke to them in parable. I think Jesus, Peter's just a little confused because he doesn't get it. He's like, mm, must be a parable. I know how this works. Jesus, teach us. <laughs> and Jesus goes, are you still so dull? Man. Son of God had a sense of humor at times. Are you still so dull? I mean, come on, Peter. I think there was something about being with Jesus, listening to his teaching, watching how he treated people that should have prepared Peter and the other disciples for this very idea. And Jesus is going, Peter, don't you get it by now? And the answer that Jesus already knows is no, he doesn't. And we all struggle with it too. There are those who have followed Jesus even for much of our lives that still struggle with this basic idea how do I make myself righteous? And we put all the effort and all the focus on us. And we think the problem is with our own actions or we look at the world and we moan and complain about how everything's going and just think, oh, if only this would happen in the White House, if only this would happen in the culture and local governments, if only these things. And Jesus says, no, no, let's look at where the real problem is. In verse 17, quite frankly, is hilarious don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? That is a very polite translation by the NIV. Out of the body, a very modern translation, obviously they wouldn't have used this, but a modern translation would be flushed down the toilet. That, that's what it's referring to. And so what Jesus is saying, as far as I can understand it, is that it doesn't matter if the food goes in clean or unclean, it all comes out the same way. He's saying, come on, guys, something happens inside of you that changes both the clean food and the unclean food, and it all comes out unclean. You're not dealing with the heart of the issue if you're only focused on the food that goes in your mouth. Jesus says it's what comes out of us, the overflow of our heart, that is what makes us clean or unclean. Murder Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander are not caused by eating unclean foods. They're caused by sin in our heart. Sin that says, I'm in charge, I know what's best, and I'm going to get what I want. And Jesus says, all of this is out of our heart. So another way of saying what's the problem is asking ourselves, what's the true source of righteousness? What makes us right with God? It's not whether or not we just protect ourselves from the world. It's not even whether or not we just do the right things and don't do the wrong things. Because in both of those, there's this assumption that in and of myself, I am basically righteous and I just need to be a little more careful about living in this world. Jesus' understanding of righteousness gets to our heart and says, you are basically sinful. And you need something to come in and change your heart. The Pharisees' way of looking at this would be like going to an apple orchard and finding a tree with rotten fruit all over it. And saying, this is an easy fix. I'll just pick off all the rotten fruit and staple on nice, shiny new apples. Done tree is fixed. Jesus says, no, there's a sickness at the root of that tree that we need to deal with first. Now, again, this comes straight out of the old Testament. And Jesus here in this passage doesn't deal with how that heart gets changed. But they were prepared for this. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 27. For I will take you, this is written to the Jewish people, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful about keeping or to keep my laws. Jesus had prepared them for this moment. That God was the one who had to change them and save them. The real problem in our life is not out there with the world. It's not even out there with our personal actions. The real problem is in here with our hearts. We need to be righteous. So how? In Matthew chapter 23, in one of these woes, Jesus compares these religious leaders with whitewashed tombs. He says, you've taken this thing and you've painted it and you've made it look beautiful, but inside it's just full of death. And all the paint in the world is not going to make a difference. Friends, I wonder how many of us are spending so much of our effort whitewashing our own tombs. And it's almost like Christianity has sort of moved on from whitewashing our own tombs. And now we think, well, if we can just whitewash the tombs of the world, then it'll look better. We're still ignoring the heart issue. We're all a bunch of sinners and we need to be saved and changed by God. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says something so profound. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What was Paul before he became a Christian? Does anybody know? He was a Pharisee. He was part of this group that Jesus is calling out and saying, you're missing the whole point. And this guy that was dead and lost and a weed that should have been pulled up and a blind guide and a whitewashed tomb, he meets Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and his life changes. This Pharisee that went around teaching everybody your righteousness about what you do and how you do it and whether you do it as well as I do, now he says, I understand something. It's all about the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that because we are lost sinners and cannot help ourselves, God sent his son to die on the cross for us. That's the gospel. And that because we couldn't bring ourselves from death to life, Jesus rose from the grave and promises eternal life to all who believe. That's the gospel. And God or Paul then looks at that and says, that's what makes us righteous. And he goes on to write in other letters, I leave everything behind, everything I once thought. It's all a bunch of garbage. King James says, dung, worthy to be flushed down the toilet. Paul changed because of the gospel. And he lived his life every moment after that to tell people, it's only Jesus Christ that can change you. You can't do it yourself. So, we need to ask ourselves, as we diagnose the heart of our worship, how do we answer the question, what is the real problem? As long as we as Christians keep saying the real problem is out there in the world, we're going to ignore our own hearts. Don't get me wrong, the world is full of problems. But we're called here. We're called to diagnose our own hearts and to say, am I submitting to God's authority? Am I living a life of worship? Because how can we possibly call the world to do it when we're still struggling with it ourselves? Only Jesus can heal our hearts and save us from our sins and deal with the real problem in this world. So there you go. Two questions. Who's in charge? Is it you? Is it some other religious teacher or tradition? Is it our culture and changing standards and the media or whether or not people like us as Christians? Or can we say, I truly declare and believe in my life, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in charge. Period. No matter what. And what's the problem? Are we going to focus on the world out there? Or just focus on our habits and our actions and just try to change those? Or are we going to come before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and say, you died for me. I can't save myself. Jesus, I need a new heart. We don't need more of us in this world. We don't need more of our ideas and our opinions. We need Jesus, His authority, His word, His salvation, His resurrection, and His life changing power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you as a hypocrite, struggling in this world to trust you more and to submit to your authority in my life. Struggling to understand that my greatest need is Jesus Christ in any and every situation to know you and follow you and trust you more. And God, I think I can speak on behalf of my fellow hypocrites. Like Peter, we're struggling. We tend to be a bit dull and a bit dense along the way. And yet, Father, you spoke harshly to the Pharisees. But you kept calling Peter to follow you. And so I pray this morning that we, as we diagnose the heart of our worship and our life, that we would say, first of all, you are in charge and we submit to you. And second of all, we recognize that our greatest problem is that we are sinners living in rebellion against you until you save us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And then Father, like Peter and the other apostles, though they struggled along the way, you use them to change the world. Not through their righteousness or their rules or their teachings, but through the power of the gospel at work in people. And so I pray today that we would be people that hold on to the truth, the righteousness, and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it would change us from the inside out and as we live and breathe a life of worship lived in relationship with you, what the world would see is not our rules, not our traditions, but the good news that the Son of God has come to save them from their sins and that they would turn and be saved and have their hearts changed by you. In your name we pray, amen.